Our God, we are so delighted that we can come and assemble this morning, this Lord's Day, to worship your holy name. You who are the God that has always been, is, and forever will be, the one who has no rival, who is unequaled, unparalleled, holy other. It is you that we come to and we dare to come because of Christ, on the merits of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We come to you as our Father and we rejoice that we can do so. We rejoice that we know to do so because you have revealed yourself to us. You have chosen to condescend to lowly man and reveal in your word who you are and what you have done for us. And so now as we seek to hear from you, we ask that you would be pleased to speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would take your word and bring it to our minds and to our hearts and transform us cause us to have an affection for you, a desire to live for you, to obey you, and to worship you. Please meet with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our text this morning is Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And we'll get to it in just a few minutes. Uh, Just as Pastor Rod asked me to take greetings to them from us, I bring you greetings from the brothers and sisters of Providence Bible Church in Sunnyvale, where I've had the joy of ministering the word once last month and and then again last week. They are a like-minded congregation that holds dear the same faith that we do. Uh, Some of you know of them, and in particular, the doctrines that are in focus for us as we mark Reformation Day, are dear to them as well. One of the outcomes of the Reformation was the recovery of the understanding that are available to us in the scriptures alone, and hence sola scriptura. And so it is my joy this morning to join the psalmist David in extolling the worth and the work of the word. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. The testimony, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, is your servant warned. And in keeping of them, there is great reward. This message presupposes three things. Namely, that there is a God, capital G. That he speaks through a book, capital B, if you will. And that he speaks to people like you and like me. If we are not on the same page about those three presuppositions, everything that I'm about to say can be thrown out the window. But if indeed there is a God, if indeed he has chosen to speak through a book, and if indeed he speaks to people like you and like me, then we have much to see from these verses. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. If you're taking notes, uh, my proposition is that the worth and the work of the Word of God compels our desire and our obedience. The worth and the work of the Word of God compels our desire and our obedience. And it does so as we heed its warnings and pursue its reward. I believe you have a longer version of the proposition in your bulletin there. We'll be examining this passage under three headings. Word, worth, and work. Word, worth, and work. And so let's begin with word. And I'd like to see this under two questions. What is it and where is it from? There are six terms in verses 7 through 9 of our text that are used to describe what God's word is. They are law, testimony, Precepts or statutes, depending on your version, commandment, fear, and rules or judgment. But before we dive into these, notice with me the phrase that follows all six of them, of the Lord. The word is of the Lord. It is both from Him and it is about Him. The opening verses of this psalm speak of how the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It tells of how day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. This is verses 1 and 2. This is what theologians refer to as general revelation. However, general revelation in and of itself is insufficient in revealing to us and making us wise unto salvation. And so here now, the psalmist, David, moves from general revelation to 
the Word of God, or what we might call special revelation. He calls our attention to the surpassing excellence of special revelation, namely the very Word of God. As Paul writes to us in 2 Timothy, which is where we began our call to worship this morning, chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It originates and it proceeds from the very mouth of God, surpassing all declaration and proclamation and speech that comes from the created order. Now then, let us see the terms that David uses to describe the word of the Lord. The first one is law in verse 7. At the time that David wrote this, the law would have been a reference to the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament. And we live in a day when the law of God is assumed to be a relic of the past. Certainly an artifact of Judeo-Christian tradition, and yet many would question its application to us today. Yet the revelatory character of the law is of utmost importance to us today if we are to understand the giver of the law. If we are to understand what is pleasing to him and what is displeasing to him in all of his splendor and his holiness. The second word that the psalmist uses here is testimony. The word of God is his testimony. To testify means to bear witness. In our human society, and in particular in the context of the judicial system, a person testifies or bears witness about another. And yet we know that even such a witness today needs to be corroborated by other witnesses. Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed. Only the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. In 2 Corinthians 13.1, Paul, who is certainly familiar with this verse in Deuteronomy that I've just read, writes to the church in Corinth and says, Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. However, here in Psalm 19, God is the self-sufficient witness who needs no corroboration, and His revelation is by the word of His testimony. Think of creation. Who was there when God created the heavens and the earth? Or as God rhetorically asks Job, where were you when I laid down the foundation of the earth? No one was there to record it for us. So all we have is the testimony of God himself. Bearing witness and revealing this testimony by divine inspiration that we today may know of it. The third term that the psalmist uses here is precepts or statutes. Precepts are rules intended to regulate behavior or thought. Lines that are drawn to demarcate what is or is not permissible. Simply put, the Word of God defines what is right and what is wrong. And still in verse 8, we have the fourth term, commandment. 
an imperative that creates an obligation on the part of the one to whom it is given. The Word of God is not merely to be read and to be studied, but it is to be obeyed. The fifth term in verse 9 is fear. Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And still, in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, beginning of knowledge, beginning of wisdom. Now, you and I most likely understand this phrase, the fear of the Lord, as speaking to an awe and a reverence for God in a somewhat subjective sense. And yet, the use of this phrase in our text as one of the synonyms for the Word of God is a reminder that our subjective sense of awe and reverence for God must find objective grounding in His revealed Word. And so the knowledge and the wisdom whose beginning those verses in Proverbs ascribe to the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, can and, and are rightfully ascribed to the Word of God, where true knowledge and wisdom is found. And then lastly, we have the term rules, the rules of the Lord, not in the sense of precepts, which we just saw, but more in the sense of rulings or judgments or just decrees. Again, the judicial system comes to mind here, in which a judge, having taken into account the laws of the land and the testimony of the various witnesses, now pronounces judgment which is binding in nature. Such is the Word of God. It pronounces judgments or just decrees that are binding upon us. And so that is the Word. That's what it is, and that is where it is from. Next, I'd like us to see the worth, the worth of the Word. It is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. Notice first that each of these descriptions of worth is in the present tense, is perfect, is sure, is right, is pure, is clean, is true. This speaks to the eternal nature of God's Word. Each of these is as much the case today as it was yesteryear and will remain so. The word perfect speaks of wholeness, entire, blameless, lacking nothing. It speaks of sufficiency and no deficiency. Friends, do we believe this? Or are we guilty of relegating this to an academic fact? Do we believe that we have the whole and blameless word of very God? That He has deigned to reveal Himself to us in such a whole manner? The word sure speaks to dependability. To be sure-footed is to walk confidently, unlikely to stumble or slip. When it comes to buildings, a sure foundation is a solid foundation, one upon which a structure can be built and will withstand the fiercest of storms. I don't know how many of you saw the images from a town called Mexico Beach in Florida, in which one house was left standing amidst Rows upon rows of houses that were completely flattened. This is from the recent Hurricane Michael. 
And if any of you read the story, when the owner of the house that was left standing was interviewed, he described how he had the building built to codes that were more strict than Florida law requires, in addition to having one-foot-thick concrete walls and steel cables to hold the roof in place, the key was 40-foot-tall pilings driven deep into the ground upon which that house was built. And when the 130-mile-per-hour winds came, that house stood firm while all the others crumbled. There we have a picture of a sure foundation. And such is the Word of God. It is sure. It is a foundation upon which we can build our lives such that when the storms of life come and blow and beat upon that house, it will stand. The Word of God is right. Verse 8. Right as opposed to wrong. Remember we said that precepts are rules intended to regulate behavior or thought. The Word of God with its precepts and statutes leads us aright. It leads us to right thinking. It leads us to right living. And if we take the next two together, the Word of God is pure. It is undefiled. It is devoid of blemish. There is no corruption in it. The Word of God is clean. There is an inward cleanliness that it produces because of its very nature. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. And then the word of God is true. It's being said that we're increasingly living in a post-truth society. Fact-checking is becoming an everyday part of how we process information. Meanwhile, the Word of God is true. Here in verse 9, we see that it speaks to much more than being factually correct. It's speaking here of its just decrees, its just rulings, its judgments. There is a rightness and a goodness to it. Indeed, it is described here at the end of verse 9 as being righteous altogether. Now, as we contemplate these words of David, as he extols the worth of the Word of God, and we remember that he was most likely just referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, how much more should our estimation of the worth of the Word of God be, we who have the full canon of Scripture available to us today in a language that we understand. And so we've seen the word, what it is, where it's from. We've seen its worth. Thirdly, we turn to its work. Its work. And we start back again in verse 7, perhaps with its most vital work. The word of God converts or revives the soul. The Word of God literally gives life to the human soul where previously there was lifelessness or faintness necessitating revival. Here the picture of the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37 comes to mind. The Lord brings Ezekiel to the middle of this valley full of very dry bones, we're told, and He asks them, can these bones live and in one of the greatest dodges recording in scripture, recorded for us in Scripture, how does Ezekiel reply? 
Oh, Lord God, you know. God then says to Ezekiel to preach to or to prophesy over these bones and to say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And so Ezekiel does as the Lord commanded him. And lo and behold, there was a sound, there was a rattling, bones coming together, sinews beginning to appear on them, followed by flesh, followed by skin, and finally the very breath of life. And it resulted in an exceeding great army, we're told. What a picture of the life-giving nature of the Word of God. Now, perhaps you hear that and you're thinking, that sounds too much like fiction. After all, wasn't that just a vision? Well, in John 11, we find the record of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after he had been buried in the tomb for four days. And we read in verse 44 of John 11 that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out or come forth. And dead man Lazarus obeys and walks out of the tomb. If you're here this morning and your confidence for everlasting joy and life with God is in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for you, then you have come to know this same life-giving power of the Word of God. For if you have believed, the Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, that the faith to believe in Jesus unto salvation comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And if you're here today and you have not heard this good news, God has brought you here this morning under the preaching of His Word, To hear that Jesus Christ is Lord, that having lived a perfect, sinless life in this world, he took upon himself the sin of sinners such as you and me, and he was bruised, he was wounded, he was crushed, he died and was raised up on the third day victorious, signifying that God's righteous wrath was fully propitiated, fully absorbed, so that all who believe in Him are instead clothed with the spotless righteousness of Christ and are saved from the wrath that is to come. He calls you now to confess this and to believe in your heart with the ensuing promise that you will be saved. The life-giving work of the Word of God continues in the church among the converted. We are weak, We are desperately needy and fully dependent on the bread of heaven for our sustenance. Just as we normally and regularly put food in our bellies for physical sustenance, Matthew 4.4 tells us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of God is or ought to be, our daily bread. We ask that the Lord would help us to make that true of us, each and every one of us who knows Him as Lord. Next, we see that the Word of God makes the simple wise. The word simple in the Bible is not used as a compliment. It has the connotation of lowliness, of rank, 
lowliness of status, and even intelligence. And yet the Word of God has the power to turn even the simplest of men into the wisest of men. Psalm 119, verse 130, says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. You and I are prone to seek wisdom and understanding in many places. The latest book, the latest research publication, the latest industry journal, these all have their place. And yet, how might our relationship with this book change if we truly believed in our heart of hearts that it is able to make us wise. Thirdly, the Word of God rejoices the heart. In particular, its precepts, its statutes, its rules cause the heart to rejoice. When's the last time your heart rejoiced over the rules of Scripture? Our joy is to be found in the fact that they are right. We've all heard someone say, that's just not right, or that's just wrong. When we hear these words, the person speaking is not rejoicing. Rather, they are bemoaning a particular situation. However, in contrast, when it comes to the Word of God, it is right and it has the effect of rejoicing the heart because of its rightness. Fourth, the Word of God enlightens the eyes. In Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 1, he mentions, as he prays for the Ephesians, that their eyes, specifically the eyes of their hearts, would be enlightened to see three things. Listen to verses 17 through 19 of Ephesians 1. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, and here it is, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, one, what is the hope to which he has called you, two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Well, how might the answer to Paul's prayer come about in the lives of these Ephesian believers? How might the eyes of these Ephesian believers be enlightened to know what is the hope to which God has called them, to know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward those who believe. It is the Word of God that enlightens the eyes. It is the Word of God through which the very prayer that Paul prays for these Ephesian believers can be brought to pass. And fifth, the Word of God endures forever. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Matthew 5, 18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Heaven and earth have not yet passed away, as we sit here today, and so we know that the Word of God still remains and will remain until all is accomplished. Matthew repeats it in chapter 24, verse 35, when he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 
reads, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And so scripture repeats time and time again that the word of God endures forever. As a child growing up, one of the songs that we used to sing was called The Bible Stands. And the verses say, The Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of time. Its pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with a light sublime. The second verse says, The Bible stands and it will forever when the world has passed away. By inspiration it has been given. All its precepts I will obey. The last verse says, The Bible stands every test we give it, for its author is divine. By grace alone I expect to live it and to prove it and to make it mine. The chorus says, The Bible stands, though the hills may tumble. It will firmly stand when the earth shall crumble. I will plant my feet on its firm foundation, for the Bible stands. What then ought we to do with all that we have heard this morning about God's Word, what it is, where it is from, of its worth, and of its work. The first thing here in verse 10 is that we are to desire God's Word. We are to desire God's Word. And that is the aim of this morning's sermon. It is my prayer for myself first. It's my prayer for my family. And it's my prayer for each of you, brothers and sisters, in Christ The word of God is to be desired. Verse 10 says it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Fine gold was refined gold with no impurities. The most expensive and precious store of value in David's day. In modern parlance, it is more to be desired than a six-figure salary. It is more desired... More to be desired than a seven-figure 401k balance. It is more to be desired than the most generous stock option grant in the hottest pre-IPO tech startup company in the valley. How about a heart check with a much more modest amount of present-day gold? Perhaps you've heard John Piper ask this question. If I offered you $1,000 for every verse you memorized in the next week, how many do you think you could memorize? Yet the real value of the word is far greater than a thousand dollars a verse. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. The question again is this, do I believe this? Do you believe it? If the desirability of gold doesn't ring your bell, David then describes the word as being sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. As supremely valuable As fine gold was in David's day, so was the surpassing sweetness of honey in that time. That is the the superlative that David could use to describe utmost sweetness. And so whatever it is that you might consider sweet, it may not be honey. Whatever it is that you might consider pleasing to the taste or to the senses, this verse tells us that the word of God is sweeter Listen to the psalmist's expressions of delight and desire and sweetness in Psalm 119. And listen for how they mirror our text in Psalm 19. You would know that Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, is all about the Word of God. And so listen to 
these select verses from Psalm 119 and listen for the parallels in our, from our, to our text this morning. Psalm 119 verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 111 says, Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Verse 131 says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Now let me say a a word to you who are here today who perhaps like me hear what we've just seen and are thinking, that's just not where I am. When I examine myself, I, I can't say that I desire the Word of God in the way that the psalmist is describing. My encouragement to you, as I encourage myself this morning, is that even that recognition right now of a gap between where your desire is right now and where it ought to be is a work of grace. That God is laying upon your heart a desire to desire, if you will. And be encouraged by that. Be encouraged by that flame which may seem small and weak. Be encouraged that as you open this book and as you ask the Holy Spirit to take the words on the pages of this book and bring them to life, that He is pleased to do that. That He is pleased to do that. And we'll say something more about that at the very end when we conclude. So we are to desire God's Word and next... We are to obey God's word. We are to obey God's word. Verse 11 of our text this morning says, Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. So under obedience we have warnings and reward. We are to heed its warnings, and we are to be motivated not just by the warnings, but by the reward. And this is where the rubber meets the road, for even Satan knows God's word by heart. The key difference for Christians is that we take them to heart, these words, and they bear fruit in our lives. It has been said that the longest distance in the world is from the head to the heart. Taking what we know and turning it into action, and in so doing, proving to be truly wise. From 2 Timothy 3.16, which we've already quoted We learn that not only is all Scripture God-breathed, but it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Those two middle words, reproof and correction, are why the warning passages of Scripture are so vital. To rebuke us when when needed, and to point us back to the narrow road that leads to life. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23 That's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's been called perhaps the scariest passage in all the Bible. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It goes on to say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them these dreadful words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What a warning. 
What about a few chapters later in Matthew 12, 36, which says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. We live in a day where we have so many ways of speaking out of turn, carelessly. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us that there's a holiness without which no man will see the Lord. That is a verse that God used particularly in my life several years ago to awaken me from a recklessness in my walk with Him and to bring me to an understanding of the need for personal holiness in the Christian life. We do not have the time to do a proper overview of all the warnings found in God's Word, but I do want us to look at the very short letter of 2 Peter, if you'll turn there with me. 2 Peter... And I want us to see how in this short letter, just three short chapters, warning upon warning upon warning upon warning appear. And have that just be one sample of many other warning passages that we could possibly look at. So if you're in 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 8 tells us that we become ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we are not making every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Right? It's like a whole ladder there that starts from faith and ends with love. And verse 9, it says that we become blind And we forget that we were cleansed from our former sins if we lack these qualities that we've just read. Verse 10 says that we fall if we do not practice these same qualities. These are warnings about becoming ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, about becoming blind and forgetting that we were cleansed of our former sins, about falling. Chapter 2, we are warned that those who wander into sensuality are condemned and will be destroyed. That's in verse 3. In verse 9 of chapter 2, we are warned that the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Defiling passion, despise authority. We don't often think of those two in the same sentence. Verses 10 and following, chapter 2, warn us that those who revel in sin are blots and blemishes, irrational animals, unsteady souls, and accursed children. Verses 19 to 21 warn us that those who return to live in their sin again are like those returning to slavery, those returning to mire, and those returning to vomit. Chapter 3, verse 10 warns us that all our works will be exposed on the last day. Verse 11 warns us that whatever we live for in this life will be burned up and dissolved. Perhaps you're reading that and you're saying, well, those are great warnings for those who are outside of Christ. But listen to the following quote by Tom Schreiner on the function of the warning passages in Scripture. He says, The warnings and admonitions in the scriptures have a particular function. 
By them, believers are warned against departing from Christ and the gospel. If they do apostatize, then they will face final damnation. In other words, the idea that the warnings relate only to the losing of rewards that are beyond eternal life is mistaken. The admonitions and threats in the scriptures address the issue of eternal life. Nor are the warnings addressed to those who are nearly Christians. They are addressed to those who have received the Holy Spirit, to those who are genuine Christians. The warning passages of scripture are for you and I. If we are in Christ, salvation is indeed promised to all who would believe, and yet it is by means of taking these warnings seriously that the promise of our salvation ultimately is secured. These warnings keep us on the narrow road. If you've ever been bowling and you know the, the two rails that you can slide in so that the bowling ball doesn't go off into the gutter, that's that's the image that comes to my mind of keeping, keeping the ball on, on the narrow lane, if you will. Right? We have warnings of Scripture given to us for our walk with Him. Finally, we see at the end of our text this morning, moreover by them is your servant warned. We've just looked at warnings. It says, in keeping of them, there is great reward. There is great reward. The word keeping here has to do with obedience. The great reward of keeping the Word of God is God Himself. Steve Fuller, a pastor in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, has helpfully said that obedience is not about us giving God something He needs, but about God giving us something we need, namely more joy in Him. More joy in Him. In Psalm 119, the psalmist prays in verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And so that's where we begin. We ask the Lord to do this for us when we approach his word. Now here, the psalmist continues, still in Psalm 119, in verses 36 and 112, to help us with our obedience. And I want you to listen for the word incline in both of these verses, verse 36 and 112. In verse 36, he asks the Lord, incline my heart. To your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And then in verse 112, same chapter, he says, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. So we beseech God to incline our heart with all of its selfish disinclination to his word, and we actively incline our heart to perform His statutes, to obey His Word forever to the end. It's not either or, it's both. Paul commends the church in Philippi for their obedience in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And in the same vein, speaking of obedience, he urges them and urges us today to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We are to work it out for He works in. He works in us, both to will and to work of His good pleasure. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
concluding thoughts, I leave you with this beautiful paragraph that I came across as I was preparing this sermon. It's found in the introduction of Bibles that are produced by the Gideons International. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Gideons. But listen to this dense, rich paragraph as we conclude. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, too, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject. Our good is its design, and the glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, it rewards the greatest labor, and it will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Let us pray. Your word, O oh God, is living and active. Your word tells us that it is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from your sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of you to whom we must give an account. And so, Lord, do cause us to tremble at your word. And yet, at the same time, would you please draw near to us as we take great comfort that you have chosen to reveal yourself to sinful man for the purpose of reconciling us to yourself if we will but repent, turn from sin and self and believe the good news of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word of God. How we thank you for your Word, the Bible which points us daily to the Word, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that each day, as we have opportunity, and we do have opportunity, that we would, you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might behold 
wondrous things from your law. That you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and thus cause us to incline our hearts to you and to obey you. We pray that these words of the psalmist will become our words that we would not be discouraged because of the gap between our desire today and what the psalmist expresses here in Psalm 19. But rather that that would be something that we would come to you each day and ask for your help to, to reach for. Please do this in each one of our lives today and in the days to come. We thank you for the work that you wrought over 500 years ago now in the recovery of the understanding that all that we need for salvation is to be found in this word, sola scriptura, along with the other great truths of the Reformation. We rejoice that others fought and laid down their lives that we today would know this to be so, that our eyes would be opened. And so we ask that you would be continuing the work of reformation in our hearts, conforming us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, by your word and by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.